for you, does horror have to be scary? Um, I think I get asked this a bit like, what is horror? And um, there's lots of different answers that you can give. Um, but I would say, first of all, so in like in academia, so like books that are published by like scholars on horror, they always feel like they have to have a section at the beginning where they define what a horror film is and they talk about what other people say a horror film is. And the actual kind of academic world writing about horror cinema has been going properly about 30 years now and still no one has come up with like the ultimate definition. So the jury's still out on what horror is. So I go with like my own personal brand of horror, which is I want to be entertained. I want to jump. Like I want to, I want to feel like the creep intention. So like with Mirror Mirror, when she's going and putting her hand in the garbage disposal and nothing happens, and then she goes back, you know, that kind of, oh, something's coming. Um, or like in Mirror Mirror when one of the two interchangeable men. Jeff has been getting it on with Megan on her bed and he decides not to and he backs towards the mirror and you're thinking, don't back into the mirror because there's a demon in the mirror. So I like things with um, a lot of plot, a lot of entertainment, rising tension, suspense, but I'm also quite happy for them to have a kind of bit of levity in places, you know, to have like a lighthearted quality at times. Like I want to finish the film and feel like satisfied and that I've had like the, the highs and lows of a roller coaster. Um, that's how I kind of see it. Whereas, you know, quite a lot of horror films, like certain types, really enjoy just like slow dread and trauma and making you feel dreadful and leaving you afterwards feeling really wrung out and destroyed. And they're not really necessarily the kind of films that I enjoy watching. I want the ones where I'm like, is it gonna get him? Is it gonna get him? Is it in the cupboard? Don't go in there, don't go in the cellar. And then they do. I like stuff like that, so. Okay. <laughs> no, and I think that that's a, I think that's totally valid. Um you know all all genres have their have their ways of of conveying yeah. themselves yeah um, totally horror is a very broad church there are so many different subgenres and like it doesn't even have to be what makes you scared is so subjective and i don't think i'm particularly hard with horror like i have watched a lot of it but i don't think i'm particularly tough but i'll watch horror films with my friends who don't watch horror films at all and they're jumping out of their skulls on stuff that I'm I was just thinking is funny and then equally you know there's some stuff I can't watch because it's just too traumatic and other people lap it up yeah so it's just such a subjective thing and like what's on screen it can just affect you in different ways like gore doesn't necessarily make me scared like, you know, like zombie films are generally not frightening, but they're horror and they're really violent and action-packed. You know, I mean, 28 Days Later has some genuine kind of jumps in it, but, you know, horror just can be so many different things, can't it? No, absolutely. And, you know, with, with something like 28 Days Later, you know, it starts and the zombies or the horror really for only about the first half to two-thirds. Yeah. And then the real horror turns out to be, you know, humanity on the, on yep. the tail end of the thing. 
Yeah, I mean, that's your proper Stephen King hover, that the monsters aren't the things that you really need to be scared of. The things you really need to be scared of are other human beings. Like, that's essentially Stephen King's central thesis, I think. <laughs> no, that's that's very fair. Um... Hey there, Film Buds. Welcome back to the Film Buds podcast. I'm your host, Paul. And I'm Lauren. And the clip that opened up the show is from our... Our special guest that we have this week, Dr. Allison Pierce, she's not currently with Lauren and I uh, because of the fact that she's over in the UK and Lauren has to go into an office to work. It wasn't going to work out that we were going to be able to have her on at the same time as us. Um, But if you're unfamiliar, Dr. Pierce has been on before. Uh, She was with us for... Uh, an episode that we did back with Henry uh, when her book first came out, Women Make Horror, uh, and we discussed Mary Lambert's Pet Cemetery, um, which, that was me and Henry, but you watched that movie with me. Yes, I did. Um, so, dear, since you didn't, I guess, get to, to voice your opinion on, on Pet Cemetery back then, what, what did you think of Pet Cemetery? Much better than the remake. <laughs> um... It's just really, um, a really good, clean narrative. I think that it's got a lot of, like, like, I think that the creepy elements are, like, spot on. Um, I, I enjoy the, like, the, the whole journey that the, the family takes. I think more in this one than, like, the remake that we also watched together. Um, like the the whole like dynamic with how their child ends up you know um getting getting hit by the the truck and all of this like descent into madness that the father goes down and like he kind of once you've opened the the pandora's box you can't put everything back in kind of motif of the the movie it just it works so well in this and like the the creepy neighbor is is effectively creepy and I love that they actually like burned down that house. I just, it's just a, it's a really good movie. And I, you know me, I always love a lot of like practical effects, especially when they're done really successfully. And I think that that movie is just, it's really smart in how it executes a lot of the the effects to uh, to make them just nice and, and gross and weird in the right kinds of ways and really, um spectacular to watch but it's also like not um kind of like other horror where it's like really I guess um in your face all of the time like it it has a, a good build of like normality to it until things start to 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 go haywire and I just I really enjoyed that movie I think that the problem with a lot of like remakes of old things is they're like we have to make it bigger, better, faster, gorier. And it just kind of loses a lot of that humanity in the process where it's like, oh, who cares about the people? People aren't here for people. They're here for blood. Well, and I feel like the, um, I feel like the original, especially because Mary Lambert, you know, wrote it with King so involved and, or directed it, you know, with King so involved, um, you know, she, she took it very head on, um, and I think that people, for some reason, think that they need to try and do something to make King more cinematic or something like that, instead of just taking the narrative such as it is 
Um, and on top of that, I also think that the new one really whiffed it on the ending oh, as yeah. well. The little changes that they made to the ending, I don't think made it as impactful of an ending as as the original had. No, yeah, and that um that kid actor is so stinking cute. He does such a good job in it. Um, he's like two or three or something, and he's like better better at acting than a lot of people nowadays. Am I right? Um, but no, I think that like the the casting is phenomenal. I think that everything really like just just sits so well in in to like what they were going for. And I do agree that like because you know usually you can you can it's really a 50 50 flip of the coin of like whether or not having the original author there is like a good idea or not like you can really whiff something entirely if you have somebody who's got too too much at stake yeah in in the in the conversation but i think that king does a really good job of like you know, transposing a whole novel into into a movie and like translating a lot of those slower moments that are in his books very well onto film. And I think that that's also to your point of how people can think that they have to like elevate King mm-hmm. on film when in reality they're missing all of those simpler moments. You know, Carrie isn't just carry with the powers and the pig's blood and all of that it's all of the like awkward teenage moments as well yeah and i think that if you like really skip over the building blocks to a good story especially one of king's stories it the whole thing just falls flat in the end because you don't really care about anything that's happening and you're just there if you're just there for atmosphere and you're just there for like you know, to be surprised by something, then, like, you're not really there for the right reasons. Because I think that horror, at the end of the day, also has to have some kind of, like, grounding in a in a personal storyline and, and real people mm-hmm. doing extraordinary, abnormal things. Because then that's what makes your skin crawl. If I'm just watching a whole bunch of people that I can't identify do things in a world that's also, like, extreme, then I'm just, I'm just, like, I'm not even enjoying this roller coaster. I'm just on a roller coaster to just be on it. No, yeah. Um, but uh, mo- moving on from Pet Cemetery. Um, yes, sorry. No, you're totally fine. Uh, for those who don't know a little bit of, of uh, Dr. Allison Pierce's background, um, on top of her having her own book, she is also a professor of film uh, and particularly horror film. Um, and I, I reached out to her and I think I mentioned it in, in the recording that you'll hear, uh, I reached out to her to have her on the show again. It's been about a year since we had her on Mm -hmm. and, um, I wanted to, you know, bring something unique to y'all whenever I put together something, you know, um, like, like Women's History Month, you know, with women in film, I always try to go and and find things that are a little bit newer and a little bit more unique and aren't necessarily the most obvious of options because, you know, there are there are quick and easy answers to these sorts of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't give you the full depth of the history of what is available, you know? Mm-hmm. And so 
I, I did intentionally, like with the anime episode, reach out and specifically ask her not just to be on the show, but if she had any suggestions on on what she thought we should do this week. And so she brought to us um, two films from the 90s, uh, Mirror, Mirror, and Pale Blood. Um, they're both super interesting movies um, that have recently had... Um, restorations and releases on disc. Um, and it's kind of lucky that we have them because I, I saw some stats recently and I can't remember what exactly they were. Um, but they came from a film preservation group that Martin Scorsese is a part of and there's a pretty shocking amount of, of film that has gone forever. Um... I don't want to be incorrect in my in my percentages, um, but if I'm not mistaken, it's something to the effect of like seventy percent or more of films before like nineteen thirty are just gone forever. That totally makes sense. lost art. Um, and so this is what we talk about, right? When we talk about like film history, what is it? What does it encompass? Um, why physical media matters, why holding on to these things matter, because at a certain level, you know, if some schmo out in Nebraska, no offense to Nebraska or anything, has a movie on Laserdisc, and for whatever reason an, an original negative of film is lost, then potentially that schmo's copy of that movie on Laserdisc is, you know, potentially the last thing that's in existence in 40 years of that movie. Uh, and for a long time, that's been the argument. If you're ever curious about what the argument is about why they don't release the Star Wars trilogy, the original one, without George Lucas's tweaks, the claim is that the original negatives are gone. And that they don't have any of the old film stock anymore, and that the only stuff that they have now is, like, essentially his special editions from the 90s onward. That seems like he did that on purpose. I'm just going <laughs> to throw that out there. But I do um, think that we have the technology to undo his, his tweaks and, and go back to basics. Um, so I found the stats for you. Half of all American films made before 1950 are lost forever. And 90% of films made before 1929 are lost forever. I mean, that, that doesn't surprise me at all. Um, because that's also, like, before we had the Academy Awards and people were really, you know, acknowledging this is a, is a viable medium. You know, it was just kind of, it was a thing that people do. Mm -hmm. Like, whatever. Well, and that film stock was much more fragile. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times... You know, after a certain period of time, especially if a movie wasn't financially successful in any sort of way, that stuff would just get burned or recycled. Which is crazy because of the fact that, like, I'm sure that it is, it, it, it was painstaking to make movies um, back then. The whole process was, was really quite remarkable, and they were just like, mm, garbage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so what ended up happening is... is it came to be relied on, like, film projectionists who, like, didn't get rid of that film 
to end up being some of the places. So, you know, you would go into grand grandpap's basement and he'd have some old film reels, you know, like let's say five reels, only three of them are any good. So then we're taking those three reels that we found here, this one reel that we found in France and this other reel that we found in, in Wisconsin and we're reconstructing the film. Um, and it's, it's a very in-depth process, but this brings us back around to Pale Blood and Mirror Mirror, so. Perfect. Um, they're straight-to-video films, or at least, uh, Mirror Mirror was. And so it's, it's pretty lucky that we still have them, and have them in, in a form that we were able to go and, and restore them and bring them back to, uh, you know, former glory and make them look probably even better than they did when they first aired on TV. Uh, they're very interesting films. They're both from 1990. They're both very much of the time, uh, yeah. as, as we'll talk about as we get into it. Um, but they also both tackle very different things. Um, and, and we'll sort of also discuss some of those themes, but, you know, one of them is a, is a supernatural, you know, um, demonic witchcraft kind of teen story in a high school and then the other one in like middle america you know it's it's like illinois or something where the where the movie takes place or michigan or something iowa it's, it's iowa. iowa i think yeah um and then the other one takes place in los angeles you know and, and it's so, very los angeles uh with a lot of shots of la you know on the street back in that time where if you go to L.A. to those exact same locations now, it doesn't look a lick like that anymore. Mm. Um, so without further ado, we're not actually going to do any clips with any of, of the movies this week. What we're going to do is I'm going to have y'all listen to some of my discussion with Allison. Uh, and then when that's over, we'll come back around and Lauren and I will talk about them. So here is uh, myself and Dr. Pierce talking about 1990s Mirror Mirror. So take a listen. Uh, the, the two films that you suggested are both from 1990, uh, yes. and they are Mirror Mirror and Pale Blood. Yes. Um, how, how would you like to begin? Why don't you, would you like to maybe tell us a little bit about um, sort of where you saw these films, your experience with them, yeah. go into them sort of one by one? Yeah, that'd be great. Um, so I'm really interested in um, trying to think about what a history of horror films made by women looks like. And that's become like something that's like increasingly interesting, interested, I think, just in like culture in general. We're getting so many more lists these days of, you know, like 10 horror films you didn't know were directed by women, blah, blah, blah. And um, but what I find is it's the same names over and over again that are referenced in these kinds of lists. And these names are referenced quite rightly because they've made wonderful films. So films like um, Near Dark from 1987, directed by Catherine Bigelow, you know, um, Mary Lambert's Pet Cemetery, which we've chatted about and I love deeply. But we get the same old people included again and again and again and so I'm always interested in the bits of history that aren't being written about as much so the minute I find like a canon 
that's emerging of like the key women who have directed horror films, I instantly think, well, there must be others out there that just don't make it into the canon. So I always like digging around like the edges of like the accepted discourse on what constitutes history. So like for example, another film that I really like is um, Blood Diner from 1987, which is directed by Jackie Kong and is brilliant. But then alongside that, um, I eventually discovered Pale Blood from 1990. And I also discovered Mirror Mirror from 1990. Um, I can't even remember, I found out about Mirror Mirror first. I'm not even entirely sure where I found out about it. It's one of them that's kind of in the ether. It's very much a cult horror film. So if you if you Google Mirror Mirror 1990, and you have to put the year, otherwise you get lots of other films called yeah. Mirror Mirror and TV episodes, and we don't want any of that. Um, so it's a real cult film, is Mirror Mirror. And if you kind of deep dive into the list on like women made horror, when you get some that are really well researched, by people spent a good amount of time, Mirror Mirror often comes up. And I was drawn to it because it's essentially like a teen supernatural slasher film in a high school, which is very much kind of on point for me. So I think I first watched it about three or four years ago and just absolutely loved it. Um, Pale Blood is um, a newer one for me I can't again I'm not sure where exactly pale blood came into kind of my consciousness I think it was just some general like deep dive trawling on the internet and I discovered it at the same time that I discovered tale of a vampire from 1992 which is directed by Shimako Sato and it's kind of like pale blood and tale of a vampire to me like they're a great double bill of um vampire films from the early 90s really low budget um directed by women and you know notably directed by women with east asian heritage so um pale blood's directed by vv dachin hu who's originally from hong kong and is chinese and shimako sato is japanese and made tale that tale of vampire while she was in london at film school and so i like finding all these kind of links and then um I discovered that I could watch a decent copy of it when I discovered that Pale Blood had been released by Vinegar Syndrome on Blu-ray, and that made me very happy indeed. <laughs> so that's my kind of random rambly, where did you hear of those films? But that, that, that's, it's through the digging, I find. I like digging away and finding the edges of history and going in on those. <laughs> no, yeah. Um, that, that honestly was kind of how I found last week's two movies uh we i i wanted to try and find women who had directed films from before 1950 yeah uh and so it was sort of this going through of just googling and trolling and searching um yeah and uh, you know it it can definitely be hard especially when you are looking for like more and more niche sort of topics of what it is specifically that you're looking for but you can yeah. usually always find some real gems out there you know yeah yeah and I, I stand by um, Pale Blood and Mirror Mirror as like good, enjoyable films. And, you know, people can argue that stuff's not got into like the canon or the main discourse because you know what? Maybe it's not very good, but I stand by these films as excellent. And I want to bring these to as many people as possible. <laughs> no, yeah, honestly, um, I had a great time with both of them. Um, 
and so you know I, I'm gonna talk with you and then later on I'm gonna talk with um with Lauren about it um mm. and so that'll be the the sort of whole of the of the episode yeah um but we honestly had a blast watching both of these we watched them both oh, on good Sunday I think yeah um and so it was it was a really fun day um, and what what order did you watch them in? I'd be really interested um, to know which way around you watch them. Uh, alphabetically, uh, so we did Mirror <laughs> and then Pale Blood. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it you know it was definitely like a real sort of gear shift a little bit. Um, yeah. But it was it was very enjoyable, you know, and and it it didn't make it like too samey of a day either, which yeah. was also nice. Well, that was one of the reasons why, um, cause I knew I've recently watched Pale Blood and I knew I'd want to talk to you about it. And then I was trying to think, what shall we watch alongside it? If I can get away with suggesting a double bill. And I had thought about Tale of the Vampire, this one I've mentioned from 92, but they both are vampire films and they're both, well, like Pale Blood's filmed late eighties. But they're both, you know, they can, I watched Tale of a Vampire and Pale Blood um, within a day of each other. And, you know, there's a limit on kind of vampire stuff for me, really. And I just thought Mirror Mirror is such a different film. That, and like just the way it's shot, they're really different shooting styles. They're really different kind of writing and directing styles. So I just thought it might be a bit more interesting. No, yeah. Um, well, why don't we sort of jump on into it? So what can you, what can you tell us a little bit about uh, Mirror Mirror? Um, okay, so Mirror Mirror, um, this isn't like, this isn't official synopsis. This is just like me reading my cultural references into it. Um, Mirror Mirror, the lead is an actor called Rainbow Harvest who looks uncannily like Winona Ryder during Beetlejuice, which I think is a very strong reference point for this film. And it's essentially like, what if Lydia from Beetlejuice moved to a new house where there was a haunted mirror that gave her powers like Carrie? And that's kind of like what this film is doing. Um, and that, that's, that's kind of the plot, which sounds kind of reductive because I think it's a pretty smart screenplay, actually. I find it very satisfying. Um, but it's basically when Lona Megan has to move from LA to kind of a new town and she's a goth and nobody does goth stuff anymore. And she's a real outsider and she can't fit in at high school. Um, but then this um, mirror that is possessed by a demon offers her the opportunity to have her heart's desire and obviously it goes terribly wrong and you know an awful lot of people die in an awful lot of gory and inventive ways <laughs> and that's kind of what it is um but I say it's not really doing a full service to it because I think it's quite smart I mean I mean what would you say about it plot wise um no definitely I agree with where I think it's drawing its whole inspirations. Um, yeah. My, my wife before we, and Lauren, before we, you know, jumped into watching it, she was convinced that it was Winona. And so like she had to yeah. love the cast <laughs> list just to make sure. Yeah. Um, no, it definitely feels very Beetlejuice and like um, the, the Susan Gordon character, the mother. Um, yes. Feels very much like the, um, the uh, O'Hara character from Beetlejuice as well. 
Yes, um, totally. This very camp. She's very camp and over the top to start with, isn't she? And she's got all these different wigs yeah. that she's always got on. <laughs> um, and as like a performer, she kind of reminded me also of um, uh, Jennifer Coolidge a little bit as mm. well. Mm. And so you definitely have that dynamic. And then we really got into it and it was like, no, this is very much like a, a Carrie sort of story, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think that it does, to your point, I think that it does work really well. I mean, so much of horror, so much of film in general is, you know, taking things that you loved from something else and kind of putting them into a blender. Yeah, yeah, totally. And horror is a genre that is um, very accommodating of that. I would say like horror fans in particular, are like they're always up for a nod and a wink and a reference to other films like it literally like references Carrie in the dialogue when they're talking about it's not like we dump pig's blood on her yeah. you know so like it, it's very playful and horror fans generally really enjoy that we all like being in on the joke like no for sure yeah <laughs> um and so like I had I didn't have a lot of expectation I guess for either of these movies yeah um and I think that sort of just going in relatively blind. Like I knew the yeah. general plot of each of them. Um, yeah. But going in pretty just sort of cold feet, starting out with it. Um, it's a really great romp, you know, and it starts out mm. that first little bit, you know, it's this sort of idyllic little bedroom and you've got these pictures of these twins and that kind yeah. of thing. And then- And like boom. jazz music playing. Yeah, yeah. the door kicks open <laughs> And you've got a girl dragging another, uh, another one, a, a woman dragging another woman who's like bound, you know, yeah. up onto the yeah. bed. And it's just this entire like, oh, everything just elevated. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like, it's a very confident opening, I think, as well. It's um, screenwriters who are kind of saying, I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I know what I'm doing. And I know, particularly in the horror genre, you really want to start with a bang. Yeah. And they really do start with the bang, don't they? Um, it is that thing that like the minute it starts and you realise this sequence that you're describing is a prologue and actually the main film takes place in a different time period. That was um, my kind of indication that this film was slightly more ambitious in its kind of aesthetic and in its narrative and its stylings than a lot of kind of low budget independent horror from that period. You know, you can have so many films from around this period that um, have like the thinnest, simplest plot and have like literally two locations and nothing else and like three actors because it's all been done on such a budget. Mm -hmm. But there's just a lot of ambition I think yeah. in Mirror Mirror, a lot of ambition. I mean, I know this is a random tangential point that I'm going off on here, but I was thinking like even the swimming pool sequences at the school, like it's really difficult to film water sequences and it's really complicated and they have multiple scenes around and in the swimming pool with a ton of actors in. And I was even like notice, noticing the costume design and how they've even just spent the money on all the girls having identical swimming costumes and swimming caps. And you just feel like there's that bit more attention to the detail. And I assume the money to 
actually spend on having many actors who are all in, you know, bespoke costumes. So it's, I find it all very pleasant because I watch a lot of low budget horror. <laughs> I watch a lot. So it's particularly nice to find one where they've either found the money or the ingenuity mm-hmm. to just give it that bit more than the bare minimum, you know? No, yeah. And, you know, so much of it, is done in camera so much of it is done practically that they also you know are using a lot of old school you know very simple tricks to achieve a lot of really great stuff um because it's also pretty gnarly uh (laughs) there are definitely a few moments in there that are that are pretty gross um the the steam to death you know sort of sequence um (laughs) i was like this is this is right up there as as being as gross and effective as um as the nurse getting her head boiled in halloween too you know yes yes um yeah definitely there's a real love of um physical effects like practical special effects isn't there like obviously this is like not the time of like digital filmmaking and you can see there's a lot of time and thought gone into doing decent physical effects it's really it's fun i think to oh the other example that i'm immediately thinking of is um when the mum puts a hand in the sink thing what is it we don't really have them in the uk the thing that like macerates all the food yeah the uh, the garbage <laughs> disposal yes that's it we don't really have them here i was just like it's that thing that chops everything we just we just have like a hole in the uk that the water goes down and that's it um but yeah and it's when um, she puts the hand in it and you're like, oh, they're going to chop her hand off. Then she takes her hand out and she's fine. And you're like, oh, they were just playing with us. And, but no, obviously she goes back for more. <laughs> no, yeah, I was, it, it does a good job of building the tense, the tension and, and, and releasing it nicely. You know, it's not overly reliant on like a lot of cheap scares and cheap throws. Yeah. Um, it does a good job of also playing with expectation of a scene, you know, from moment yeah. to moment, that kind of thing. Um, so no, I, I really enjoyed this. Um, I thought the performances across the board were really, really good. Yeah. Um, I thought the choice to never really show too much of the demon was a really good, good call as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cause you know, that's when he a... turned, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah, because, um, when you do see the demon kind of the fullest extent you see him which is right at the end of the film in the kind of final moments which you know is the right place to actually show him um he looks kind of like the top half of like a weird werewolf man like he looks like he's come from the howling or something and so like the minute you see it like that minute you see anything the tension dissipates doesn't it yeah. so the play with on and off screen space is really effectively handled because obviously when he does pop his head out you're like oh he's a lot heavier than i thought a demon would be so <laughs> <laughs> no i'd like you know you think demon trapped in a mirror yeah you know it's gonna either have some sort of I think like more humanoid look or maybe something yeah. a little bit more ghostly. And yeah. so it's an interesting <laughs> choice of expectation for it to be this incredibly hairy, you know, <laughs> big clawed thing in this very thin mirror, you know. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. Um, I also really loved um, the performances as well. And um, there was the first time I watched it, 
um, I, w- I was really drawn by the um, older woman who plays the auctioneer. You mm-hmm. know, the woman who um, discovers the truth about kind of the black magic and the occult. So her character's called Emmeline, but I had to look that up because I never noticed that anyone was calling her during the film. And then when I looked her up, because I thought she had like the standout performance in the whole film, like everyone was good, but um, the character of Emmeline was, I just felt like, on a different kind of plane to the rest of them. And then when I looked her up, I discovered it was an actor called Avon De Carlo and that she's most well known for playing Lily Munster. But oh. I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't, I didn't watch the Munsters. I, I don't know this. But then it transpired she's like a massive Hollywood actor from the 1920s onwards. And she's been in like Cecil B. DeMille productions. And so suddenly the way that like she elevates every scene that she's in just makes complete sense and I, I don't know if you noticed I only noticed on the rewatch but whenever they've got um Yvonne De Carlo on screen the auctioneer they do loads of close-ups it's like they can tell that I mean the script is fine it's not like she's having to do anything beyond the script but there's something about the way she can move her face and she I swear she's framed in close-up loads more times than any of the other characters in the whole film including Megan like including Nikki there's just something about it's like oh we've got Yvonne Carlo. let's go for it let's just really go in and watch her face perform and it, I find it really satisfying to watch particularly a woman who's older who you don't get as much chance to see in teenage supernatural slashers There's something really satisfying about watching this like powerhouse actor just effortlessly do a thing and eat loads of Chinese food on screen quite a lot of the time. (laughs) No, yeah, um, you're right. She, you can definitely see those little shifts in her thought, you know, in whatever her tone is, whatever her character is thinking. Um, And it, it can be a very hard thing to without really twisting and contorting your face up, you know, convey those little subtle shifts in where your head is at. Yeah. Um, And actually, I'm really glad that you mentioned the eating of the food. um, Yeah. (laughs) Because this movie has a little bit of of an oral fixation. You know, there's this, you get uh, her eating the Chinese food, you have the the gum chewing scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, She's horrible. <laughs> don't like uh, it. And she puts the gum on the mirror. I'm like, dirty girl. <laughs> like yeah, she rubs it around, pops it in her own mouth, and then seems, you know, appalled by how it tastes after the fact. And like, my only thought was, what were you expecting? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And we got to the gum. I hoped you were going to go to the dinner party scene soon, though, with the flies. Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to go to next. Yeah, <laughs> and the and the sort of like larvae in the in the chicken wing for for a oh. second. Oh, it's disgusting. And um, I did um, an essay film all about eating in horror films called Three Ways to Dine Well. And I've got a clip from the dinner party scene in Mirror Mirror in there because I just find it so disgusting. <laughs> No, yeah, and and I guess, you know, I'd be curious um, if this is something that that this director, you know, has done in in other things, is like all of this excessive eating, you know, on screen. Yeah, I don't know. I find, so the film is um, written and directed by Marina Sargenti, and I find her fascinating because... She kind 
like sitting here in, you know, 2022, doing my research on the internet, um, you expect to be able, if you do a bit of digging about someone, you expect to be able to find out quite a lot about them these days online without trying too hard. But she essentially, according to the internet anyway, she just popped up from nowhere to make Mirror Mirror her debut feature film. I can't find any trace of what she did before Mirror Mirror. And then after that, she made two TV movies. Um, one of them, um, the year after Mirror Mirror, was a kind of um, demonic um, sort of church TV movie um, from, adapted from a James Patterson novel. But she made two TV movies and then she um, directed a couple of episodes for television, including an episode of Xena Warrior Princess. And then she was all um, kind of wrapped up with that by the late 90s. And then I can't find her anywhere again. Huh. And I don't know what she's, so she's a bit of a, so if anyone knows anything <laughs> about Marina Sargenti, I would love I would love to find out a bit more about her because, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by how filmmakers make films in the context of not only the time that they're making it, but who they are and where they've come from and what's led them to make a feature film. And I can't find anything out about her at all. And I've not seen the episodes of Xena, so I can't tell if there's any oral fixation in there. Um, but I don't, I don't know who she is. So on the um, Blu-ray release... There's an interview with two of the producers of Mirror Mirror, uh, but they, they talk a bit about Marina, but it's always just, it's very much in the kind of Hollywood ways. Oh, you know, she was marvelous. She was fantastic, but not really a lot of specifics. So I don't know who this woman is. I would love to find out more about her. And if any of your listeners do know how I might get in touch and interview, I would very much like to. <laughs> No, yeah, I mean, it's it's always interesting. I feel like one-hit wonders are something that, you know, sometimes get applied to things like, you know, songs primarily. But if you really yeah. look throughout the history of, of film, you can find all sorts of directors or screenwriters that yeah. popped up, did one, maybe two things. They're remembered for one of them, and then they just sort of vanished into the ether. Yeah, completely. And, you know... Like making a film is incredibly hard and incredibly stressful. And the amount of films that you develop, like the ratio for actually getting one into production and then getting one that's being made into distribution, like the percentages are so low. Like, so for all we know, like this marina could have, you know, developed another 20, 30 features that just never got over the kind of final hurdle. But to just there being like nothing. Yeah out there that's that's kind of interesting like, no for sure and like based on based on your just des, uh, description of how the producers talked about it it honestly feels like she was a bit of an enigma to them <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> she was marvelous but there's something as well like the directing is good in this film like again i watch a lot of horror films and sometimes like the directing can just be really like not like weak. And in terms of, you know, like I don't really have any sense that anyone's in command of what's supposed to go on in this scene. Um, but I think like the directing is slick. 
the editing's great, the cinematography's great, the production design, I just love, like the colours and the props, you know, it's all really well done. So for someone to turn up and make what is a pretty accomplished debut feature film and then just disappear. Yeah. Um, it's, and I think you're right, it is a very ambitious first movie and yeah, first movies I was talking with Lauren about them I think mm. films you know are, are sometimes such like a, a raw example yeah. of who that filmmaker is yeah um you know you go back to things like Bottle Rocket uh yeah. Wes Anderson's first film it has all of those sort of Wes-isms but it's also the just this very raw exactly who he was at that time sort of little yeah. capsule um and, you know, some filmmakers do, you know, only better after their their feature debut. Some kind of stay at that level, but just have better production values. And so it's always yeah. really interesting to see the, the growth pattern after that initial yeah. film. Um, and so it is a little bit of a shame to not have any of that with, uh, with her, because this was a really solid um, yeah. first outing. It was really, really good. Um, and it's um, like the length of it. I saw, you know, when I first put it on, and I, saw, I think it's an hour 46, and I was like, oh, God. Because, like, to me, like, no horror film is improved by being over about 87 minutes. Like, that's my ideal length for a horror film. And then for it to be, like, a debut, I was thinking it's really pushing the limits here. You know, like, I'd really definitely like a debut to come in at under 90 minutes um because I just it's gonna drag but it doesn't drag mm. like i i really don't notice that you know it's tipping over to one hour 50 it, it feels like there's plenty going on in it and like time is taken like time is taken with the characters to build there's no cliches here about you know like bitch queen versus outsider like those stereotypes are broadly drawn and then like actual characters emerge like um, Megan who's the protagonist played by Rainbow Harvest you really feel the development of her friendship with Nikki right yeah. and it feels genuine and I think that's partly because of this longer running time that they've just given us a bit of chance for the characters to breathe and to actually get to know each other, which is really satisfying. No, yeah, you get the, you get the nice, you know, build up and then some of the, some of that deterioration, you know, yeah. as, as Megan starts to go further and further into this possession. Um, yes. And also you get, you know, interesting sort of reversals with, um, the, the boyfriend characters, you know, <laughs> the, the popular cool jock one is kind of the nicer, you know, more understanding yeah. of the two. And the, the best friend's boyfriend is the one that's kind of a little bit of, of an ass at times, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, the first time I watched it though, like they were just completely interchangeable in my mind. Like yeah. I couldn't tell just two, like, <laughs> like vaguely handsome young men and I couldn't really tell who was who. And it's only like on the second outing that I've completely established who is Jeff, who is like the bitch queen's boyfriend, who is actually quite nice. And then it's Ron, who's the one who eats all the sandwiches and is really mean to Megan. So. Yeah. Uh, no, I honestly, Lauren and I were in the same place. We were sitting there watching it together and finally we got to this one scene where like you see both of them 
I think it was the cafeteria where you see both of them in relatively yeah. close proximity. And I was like, yeah. they're the same. I was like, I don't yeah. know how they're not twins. <laughs> yeah, I, I was, comp- I'm not very good with faces. I thought it was just me. So I'm really glad you said that as well, because they were completely <laughs> interchangeable the first time I watched it. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, and even even toward the end of the movie, you know, until there was finally just one of them, I was like, God, I could just, <laughs> I could just easily put him in the other costume and just... <laughs> yeah, and they could just carry on. They yeah. could have just carried on and we'd have been none the wiser. <laughs> yeah. We don't have Ron in today. Can we get Jeff? <laughs> you know. Yeah, Jeff will be fine. No one will notice. <laughs> um, but no, I, I really enjoyed this one. Um, Good. I'm pleased. Yeah. Uh, I guess if you had to, if you had to rate it out of five, what what would you give? Oh, oh, that's interesting. Um, I okay, but you have to bear in mind that I'm biased in lots of ways because one, it's like all about female characters and female friendship and like it's directed and written by women and like half the crew were women so that's very much my ballpark and then you have to remember it's a supernatural slasher which i also love and then you have to remember it's like a high school horror which i also love and so i would have to give it i reckon like four and a half out of five no i I think think that's pretty fair i think that's yeah fair it's Uh, really bang on bang on for me in some and to add to it, because obviously it's filmed at the back end of the 80s, that's the period when I was a kid. And so there's a certain nostalgia element for me in seeing what all the teenagers are wearing and what the parents are wearing. Because, I mean, my mum didn't dress like Megan's mum, let's be clear. Um, but there's a certain nostalgia in remembering the adults around me wearing those kinds of clothes. So I also really like that as well. <laughs> No, and that's totally fair, you know. Um, ratings are, are entirely subjective and yes, you know, they can they can be choices of the heart more than Yes. <laughs> um, uh I'll I'll save my rating until uh Lauren and I are, are talking, but I definitely okay. I think I'll think four and a half is is incredibly fair. Yeah, um, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So that was Mirror Mirror, uh which uh, we kind of already gave a little bit of a of a description on and and that kind of thing. So and and you should have a good idea of what the plot is if if you just listen to that discussion, since I already talked about it some and uh, Allison already talked about it some. Dear, what did you think of Mirror Mirror? So I think that like everything you guys said was completely on point. Um... I loved literally her description of it being like, um, what if Lydia <laughs> like got carry powers and and basically kind of went on a weird teen murder spree and and then there was also demonic possession. Like that's that's exactly what this movie is. Um I really enjoyed this movie a lot. Um yes, yes, I was convinced that that she was Winona Ryder. It's it's really um I loved the fact that like they brought so many of their um the, their influences like so directly into this movie cuz like you were right it, it is like um you know Lydia and 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 um 
not Catherine. Catherine O'Hara? I think so. Is that her name? Catherine O'Hara is, you know, is the mom, very eccentric, very artsy, very city folk. But instead of them being from New York this time, they're from Los Angeles. And, um, you know, instead of them moving to, like, I don't know where they go, like, Connecticut, I think. And they, they moved to, like, Iowa. <laughs> um... But other than those things that I was like, it's just Beetlejuice. Um, I thought that the the opening was like really interesting. These like two twins were like one, you know, murders the other to try and not have the spirit in the mirror do spirit things anymore. I love when people are like, I'm gonna delve into to black magic, basically, and I think I know something, and so therefore. I'm just going to keep going until, so, shocker, it, it doesn't work the way I expected to, and I was duped the whole time, and maybe I can fix this real quick with, like, some, some split decision, which I'm sure, honestly, she probably got from influence from the demon in the mirror, um, but... No, I think that the, the, the teen aspect of this works really well. I'm always like a little hit and miss on teen movies, depending on how, I guess, how much teen they put into it, if that makes sense. Um, I think that this movie had, had the, the right amount of like, you know, girl friendship and like true bonds and like, you know, high school, especially of this, you know, early 90s, late 80s time frame that we're in um with a school with a pool in it uh which is such a culture shock for me I've I've literally never in my life seen an actual swimming swimming pool in a high school before that is that's money um right now holy money but I think this movie was a was a crazy ride honestly and like really trying to figure out what was going to happen next in our our our, I love the fact that we started with one character as like our main character and we follow um, Megan for a very long time. And then there's this point like in the third act where our perspective character switches and our final girl changes on us to be her friend who I, I don't know the name of at the moment. Um, Nikki. Nikki. And it's really like her trying to basically pull Megan back from the brink of this demonic, um, it's not really like a possession. It's, it's more of like a, like a, like a persuasion, I guess is like my best way to say it. Cause like, she's fully aware of all of the things that she's doing, but she really enjoys, you know, the attention that she's getting and the confidence that this, you know, entity is, is giving her and is completely aware of like, all of the people that she wants to murder and just like totally like gung-ho for it until the moment where she loses control. And I think that it's kind of an interesting play almost in like, like a predator aspect of like grooming somebody to be something until, you know, and then them realizing what's happening and trying to fight back. But at that point, it's pretty much too late. Well, that that shift to to Nikki definitely mirrors some of that um, in the in the Carrie book. You know the 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 inclusion of the Sue Snell character. Yes, she is like a uh, a Sue. Yeah, because it's it's ultimately 
you know, this connection between them. And here, they're much more friends than Sue and Carrie ever were. Mm -hmm. But it's that thing where they're connected at this certain level, and they're there together at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, you were talking about it giving her more confidence. Another thing that's interesting about the movie is that as her confidence gains, uh, her costuming and wardrobing gets more fitted you know when we first meet her it's this ultra big leather Mm -hmm. jacket it's a bunch of layers and as we go deeper into it it has a little bit more um sort of 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 a sex appeal to it you know it's this uh little black dress that's like uh partially backless you know and she then it's that like shouldered you know button down Mm-hmm. number with a with a skirt and so she starts to also slough off some of these more um roomy pieces of attire that she's definitely using to kind of hide away in mm-hmm. you know that she's wearing to be a little bit more comfortable in in her but as she goes along it gets you know like i said more fitted um and a little bit more um What's the word that I want to that I want to use here? Uh, more clean also in its look. You know, it doesn't look quite as cluttered as some of her earlier looks. No, I'd agree. And honestly, um going off of that, I would say that not only does do the delayers, you know, peel away, you know, she's um but also I think that her her gothic like attire starts to become more and more aligned with like the teens of that time as well she starts to find this like journey of instead of it being like a very like overtly I'm an individual gothic attire I wear what I want she starts to to almost mirror in her own way the aesthetic of the school as she as she gains her own confidence as well because like her makeup starts to subtle out yeah and her hair starts she starts to wear it down more and you know she starts to wear less black and from the beginning she was like all black the whole time um and i think that that's a really interesting like transition point because she had this like really cool like shaved part of her hair that was like bleached blonde and then like as she starts to progress to like this this pretty girl aesthetic let's say that's you she starts to with her hair down you can't see it as much and she you know she starts to kind of kind of remove a lot of those layers that she was holding on to i think that it's also you know based probably in like in her insecurities and like um this kind of cocoon to butterfly effect but it's not the kind that she was expecting you know, she fully accepts it. She's fully like, yes, I am confident. I am here. I can do what I want. I can take what I please until she realizes that she can't, she doesn't have any control over it. And this has been like, uh, if anything, like a, a false, like, a, and it's an illusion that the, the spirit in the mirror has been giving her in order to gain more and more control over her. No, absolutely. Um... I do want to touch briefly on on some spoilers in the ending. So if you if you don't want to hear anything about the ending, 
Um, you, I'll, there are always time codes, so you can go ahead and skip to me and Allison's. Well, uh, before we get into spoilers, how about this? Dear, what would you rate out of five Mirror Mirror? Oh, um, I think that I will also go with a four and a half. I thought that this movie was super well executed. I think that all of the 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 story and the um the 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 gore was just like so good in this movie that I really kind of got lost watching it, which is always something that's fun, especially when you do watch so many movies to allow yourself to just go for for a ride and try and figure out what's going to happen next. And for the life of me, I had no idea what was going to happen next. And that's such a rare phenomenon. Um, and yeah, no, I thought that this movie was, was, um, just like a real gem out of nowhere of the early nineties, you know? No, absolutely. Uh, I think that I'll go four and a half as well. It does have just, it's so very in its period. Um, it has all of these very clever little flourishes, um, it does some really, really clever, you know, proper uh, staging work to stretch everything as far as it can, mm-hmm. while still also conveying what it needs to. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I think it works very, very well. And on a certain level, I think it also has a little bit of Raimi in it, you know, with like the weird doppelganger of Nikki. Uh, with some of the camera work as well as a little Evil Dead. Oh yeah, I loved this. Like the, I was gonna say, it was like it's definitely like a little Evil Dead moment where mm-hmm. it's just like cracking up in the corner after she's like murdered the boyfriend. It's great. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good time. Um, but going again back to the unexpected, um, and this is where we'll get into our our spoilers of it, um. The ending of this movie is, for me, probably one of the most surprising things. Not in a way that I think it, like, ruins it. You know, I don't think that it's one of those, like, twist or or sudden what-the-hell endings that, like, ruins the whole movie. But at the end of the movie, it's revealed that, like, uh, Megan and Nikki, because Nikki does the thing that she's not supposed to do. Oh, she, yeah, she asked the... She asked the mirror for something. Yeah. And it literally was, like, old, old chickatee's, like, number one rule was, like, don't do that. Yeah. And so what ends up happening is Nikki and Megan are transported back and it turns history on its end and instead of it being the twin sisters from the, the beginning of the movie... It recreates that whole moment, essentially, but now um, it's Nikki and Megan who are sort of in the past, and Megan is the one that's been killed, and Nikki is the one that is, like, offering up, you know, this sacrifice or, or what have you to to kind of end the the magic. No, yeah, and I honestly, I really enjoyed the ending because it left you in this air of, like, wait a minute, is it just a loop? Like, is this the mirror mirror? Like, it's just constantly recreating this, but, like, with different people. 
um, what you know, it made me think more about what happened to those sisters in the past to make to get them to this point. Was it like like a very similar of that time era like storyline? Like what happened? And I, I think that me continuing to like ponder that moment like really landed. And to your point, I think that like it could have like definitely made or break the the movie for like a lot of people I'm sure but like I thought that it was like a solid like oh it's still a mystery like there's not a clean happy and we tied a bow on it ending ah and it in on a certain level it also gives Nikki the opportunity if she makes the right choices to make sure that this doesn't happen again Instead of what the the twin did, where everybody was just like, oh, she went crazy after her sister disappeared. And, you know, the lore that the teenagers were telling through the, through the school. No, exactly. Um, and so I think that it's a really, you know, it's not, if you're, if you've ever seen the movie Deadly Blessing, that movie has like a little twist ending at the very, very end that was a studio edition. And it totally kind of undermines like, pretty much the entire film that you've been watching. Um, but I don't think that this does that, and I think that it's still really, really effective. I think it works very, very well. No, yeah, and honestly, I really enjoyed this movie being um, about... It's about trauma. And I really enjoyed, like, the different kinds of, like, traumatic things that happen not only to, like, our leads, but also, like, in the... In the story itself, you know, it's a the the old woman who who loses her sister and they and goes mad and like is a joke of the town, or Megan who is who has lost her father and is having a hard time dealing with this loss, and ends up adopting basically this this pseudo lover of the mirror basically and like uses this in order to fill a void that she's missing or or the mom that has lost her husband and like the therapist is like you gotta go and move and get some dogs and you should make new friends and it's all of these different people who are who are struggling with with like grief yeah and it's it's just really interesting this whole journey into the point where like we end up getting you know nikki at the end who has experienced you know losing her boyfriend and now losing her 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 best friend in like such a traumatic way and like she had gone there to try and help you know i think at the in you know deep down she was definitely kind of forced to go because like by the threat of death but I think that also, like, she did want to help Megan, and, like, losing her friend was also, like, this is horrible, traumatic experience, and it's kind of how this, like, this cycle continues constantly, and then I thought that that was a really interesting and a, an effective way of, like, breaking down um, human experience as well. No, absolutely. Um... I think it's a really, I think it's a really fun little movie, and I'm I'm very grateful that that she was willing to to share it with us. Um, I'm glad that I bought it. I think it's one that I'll definitely rewatch. Um, it's it's a fun time, and I definitely recommend you know if you're looking for something a little bit off the beaten path and you want to expand some of that some of that knowledge and get a little bit deeper into um, into horror. I think that this is definitely you know, a good, fun movie to to start with. Oh, yeah. For sure. Uh, Moving on, 
we now have our other film from 1990, Pale Blood, and here is my conversation with Dr. Pierce, so take a listen. Uh, so what can you tell us about Pale Blood? Um, Pale Blood, it doesn't have, I think, quite as simple, like straightforward a plot in many ways. I think it takes a bit longer to nail what it's about, but essentially there's a serial killer stalking the streets of LA and they're being nicknamed as the vampire killer because the victims are being found with puncture marks and drained of blood. And we follow this, this fact, this kind of murder spree draws the attention of Michael Fury, which is the best character name ever. Yeah. And he is a vampire who's drawn to LA and he wants to try and stop this vampire serial killer from doing any more bad murders. So Michael Fury turns up at the beginning of the film and arranges to meet Laurie, who um, is kind of like employed by a research agency and is there kind of doing occult research. It's quite, it's not quite clear, really, I don't think. But basically Michael Fury teams up with Laurie and it's kind of the classic odd couple where he's, because he's a vampire, obviously he's pale and silent and she's young and romantic and dreamy and really enthusiastic and he's like let's just get the job done and it follows them michael and laurie's exploits as they attempt to uncover their vampire killer yeah um no i i think that calling some of the some of the role there uh a little bit unclear is is very fair yes um, <laughs> when it begins and like he turns up at the shop and there's like i think there's like news cameras there and stuff and then that woman's there and it turns out to be lolly but i'm like i don't know what's going on i'm really confused but it, it settles down eventually <laughs> yeah um no i thought that this was uh an interesting one you're right michael fury is a great name we've got one great character name and one great actor name because we've got Michael Fury as a as a character played by um, George uh, Shakiris. Oh, I don't know because I, I don't recognize him either. He could be like a really well known actor for all I know, and I just don't know who he is. Uh, he was Bernardo in the Old West Side Story. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> that doesn't help me either. But okay. <laughs> uh, and then we have uh, the actor Wings Hauser as yeah. as van and like that name is just fantastic i saw his cast name and i was just like wings hauser yeah um, brilliant wings hauser playing van vandermeer <laughs> yeah um well and of course you know it's a vampire it's a vampire story so we have to have someone named van you know as, as yeah. a wink and a nod mm. um but no i really i i liked this one i didn't enjoy it i think as much as uh mirror mirror but mm. I didn't like this movie. Um, it's yeah. very atmospheric. Um, yes, it's absolutely. Very moody. Um, the soundtrack is fantastic. Um, oh, it's so good. <laughs> yeah, uh, I went out and bought one of the one of the Agent Orange tracks uh, Did from you? the movie. Yeah, because it just got stuck in my head, and I was like, I gotta yeah. get it out. <laughs> that's so funny that you've immediately gone to kind of mood and tone because that's just why I like this film so I feel like with Mirror Mirror I feel like the whole thing's pretty tight in terms of script and stuff like that and I don't necessarily feel Pale Blood is tight but what I'm really drawn to is the feel 
of this film. Like, um, it feels like on the brink of punk versus post-punk. Um, there's so many like record shops and um, the nightclub scenes and Agent Orange playing and all the different tribes of fashion. Like, I just love it. Like it has such um, like a Lost Boys vibe, you know, um, in the Lost Boys when they're down on the um, boardwalk. I feel like in a way it's like the tone of the Lost Boys boardwalk relocated to Sunset Boulevard. So like the whole, this is just like, this movie just feels really punk in its attitude and like punk in its tone and it's incredibly stylish. And I think I was just drawn to that more than anything. No, and I, I think that that's totally fair because as, as I was watching it, you know, it has that, it's it's 90 and so we're also kind of right there in the in the swell of sort of like the the neo-noir boom and like the beginning of like yeah. the erotic thrillers and that kind yes. of thing. And so it definitely is pulling on all of those as well with these very, um, you know, the, the house that he's staying in, this very yes home, you know, with the, the glass, the little square glass brick. <laughs> the glass brick. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. That's how I, that's how I, it gave it like the period so precisely. When you have a wall, an internal wall that's built of, um, glass bricks then you know you're in a certain time period don't yeah you? absolutely I, I just love it because <laughs> it, it's never been used since not another no. <laughs> no 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 one like beyond kind of like the 90s thought glass bricks was a good idea so <laughs> um and so it's and it's also it's so many of the exteriors are just like drenched in in neon lighting you know and yeah. it has that that proper sort of pulpy feel to it, you know, as you're going through it. I think it's so interesting that you've mentioned noir because um, I absolutely love noir. I love neo-noir. And it's not something I'd thought about until you mentioned it. But now you've mentioned it, you're totally right. I'm even just thinking about like the montage of like the LA highways that you get every so often in it. And it does have that kind of pulpy noir feel, doesn't it? So that's probably another reason why I'm so into it. And it's a detective story. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's, it's a really interesting movie also in production because, and I could be dead wrong about this. Maybe you have an answer. Some of it was filmed in Hong Kong. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that because it says that online in quite a few places. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it's possible, like the director is originally from Hong Kong, but her family had immigrated to Hawaii when she was 17 and then she moved to New York and then LA. Um, so it's possible that some of it's in Hong Kong, but I don't know which bits... No, um, I'm really not sure. Like to me, it looks very LA. It looks like it's all filmed around, like as I say, like Santa Monica Boulevard, basically. <laughs> no, for sure. Um, and it does have some LA locations listed. Um, mm. But I thought the other interesting thing about it was that it felt like a lot of it had been done in sort of a, a spaghetti western style of production. Of we took the camera out, yeah, and we recorded without sound, and then we came in later. <laughs> And just did nothing yeah. but ADR. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's, there's a definite, there's a one or two scenes where I was like, this feels very ADR. I'm sure there's a lot of ADR going on here. 
Um, but then there's just some of the scenes where, like you say, you feel that there's some kind of renegade filmmaking going on where they've just like driven past and filmed a load of punks while they didn't even necessarily realise, you know? Because <laughs> it feels like... that it. Obviously, it's kind of, it's not, but it almost has like a documentary feel in places and some of the exterior shooting in particular, it just feels like they're capturing what bits of LA looked at that point in time as they were filming, regardless potentially of permits or <laughs> permissions. <laughs> well, you know, especially in LA, it can be such a, such a cumbersome process, you know, to yeah. get exterior shooting permits and get, you know, everything locked down. And yeah. And so if they were, you know, as, and you know, I'm sure that this wasn't like a low, low budget, but I'm sure that it was a tight budget for, for yes. what they were trying to do. And so sometimes, you know, maybe it's just, especially back then, a little bit more of a roll of the dice on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We'll just do a few like, takes real quick. You know? Yeah, let's just go for it. And let's just um, film at this like um, sidewalk and see who, we, see who we can get in shot. And then we'll put that into the film, you know, in case it's not quite enough story. Like, we can have some really cool shots. And that's how it ends up being a film for me, as much about like mood and tone and atmosphere, because you do get such a sense of time and setting with this one. No, absolutely. Um, and a lot of very interesting little tiny visual flourishes you know yeah. um there's the the scene between michael fury and i think it's um jenny no maybe it's cherry uh the one, one of them at the, at we've the got club. really similar names as yeah. well. like, <laughs> they should have called one like veronica or something but it's actually hard to differentiate the names isn't it yeah laurie jenny cherry yeah <laughs> um real real mess of names um and like as they're as they're going into her apartment it has this sort of smeared high motion blur effect you know yes Uh, and that's so of its time as well isn't it there's that particular visual effect that was used throughout the 1980s that kind of dates it to a particular time period (laughs) no for sure um but it, it it works so well in the film because also none of these things are being done, you know, as kind of um, uh, kind of a play on any of it. Like it's all being done very earnestly. Yeah. And and so I wouldn't say that you know it's it's fun to watch it, but I also wouldn't say that it ever feels um, like it's making fun in any no. sort of way of of yeah. those choices and of that style. Yeah, completely. I feel like the filmmakers are committed to making the best possible vampire film that they can here. There isn't, there's no kind of arrogance, I would say, or kind of like lazy irony or anything. They're really going for it, which I'm very into. No, yeah. Um, I loved his, uh, his portable coffin. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was a bit wild, wasn't it? I was like, wow, they'll have definitely had to build that for the film, weren't they? You know, like yeah. very specific this kind of pop-up, like the equivalent of a pop-up tent, and it's just a pop-up coffin kind of. And yeah, like I honestly I imagine that they did probably, now that you mention it, go and like get some actual tent poles and probably <laughs> use that as as their basis for some of the framing of that thing. But you're right, it probably had to be a custom piece. 
Yeah, which is crazy. Like, say, when you're doing stuff on such a low budget as an independent filmmaker, that, you know, like, choices to essentially custom build a coffin. It's just brilliant. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Um, but no, I, I think that, I think this movie works pretty well. Um, yeah. It definitely, I think, builds as it goes and gets yeah. a little bit more focused as we, as we get yeah. to our, our final reveal. Yes. Um, and I thought that the cast did a really good job. I think that Wings Hauser, for me, honestly, did sort of steal Van, just about steal every <laughs> scene that he was in. Yeah, I mean, like, he's, like, relishing being the evil filmmaker, isn't yeah. he? You know, like, he is having a great time, like, really performing, like, the baddie to the fullest extent, and just really creating a portrayal of filmmakers as complete like dickheads, like yeah. arrogant, egotistical <laughs> dickheads who are consumed by the art. Like you know really early on that Van is a bad person because one of the first speeches he has is like making a case for video art as like a really fine form of expression. He's like, oh, okay, right. He's going to turn out to be a dickhead. And like, <laughs> he's just really like, when he sat at his bank of monitors, which is really creepy. And then he's making the girls do like their weird um, performance art piece with an egg. And it's like, you're like, oh, he's just horrible. And then he turns out to be a really horrible person, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no, I really, I think it's, I think also that sort of element really plays in well with the idea of vampires, you know, this perpetual yeah. stalker, this kind of watcher. Yeah, uh, and taker, like a yeah. feeder on other people. <laughs> no, and so I think that he he plays totally right into that exact sort of, um, you know, sort of cultural makeup of of how we perceive vampires, you know, on a certain level. Yeah, it's a hundred percent. It's a really good analogy. Like in my screening notes for this, I I literally wrote in capitals, um, filmmakers are takers in this horror film. And it made me think of like Peeping Tom and films where like the actual filmmaking apparatus is part of the horror, which, you know, I'm, I don't know if this film's necessarily referencing Peeping Tom. I mean, the director did go to UCLA film school. So, you know, she may well have watched it. Um, but there is just that sense of whenever filmmakers are in horror films, they're always like dreadful people. <laughs> they're always doing something awful. No, that's true. There, there aren't a lot of examples where, now that you mention it, if I'm really thinking about it, there really aren't a lot of examples of movies about movies or filmmakers or what have you where they are you know, genuine altruistic, you know, they're the good guys of the story kind of folks. Um, you know, because like you think about Tropic Thunder, the only person who's meant to really be like a nice guy in that is one of the one of the lesser actors of the of the whole thing. Mm. Um, you look at Truman Show, and yeah. the director of that is of course our our ultimate villain of the of the piece. Yeah. Um Directors seem to be fond of um, casting their art as something draining that takes and is um, like egotistical. I was yeah. thinking even um, 
about like the low budget, I think slasher from 91 called Popcorn, which is amazing. I mean, I should just come on another time and talk to you about Popcorn because it's um, a load of filmmaking students who put on an all night horror film screening in a local theatre that's about to be taken down. And even like just the act of like watching films is enough for the horror to erupt like literally through the screen. And like whenever anyone is making films or screening films, like something dreadful will happen. Interesting. No, I'll definitely, we can definitely do popcorn the next time that you come on. Yeah, popcorn's great. And um, it recently got, I think, a restoration, but if not, like a straight Blu-ray release. So it is available now and it's it's fun. Like you'll, you'll have judged now, like I've recommended three films in total to film buds now to watch. And I would say all of them. Um, so Pet Cemetery, Pale Blood, Mirror, Mirror, they all have a fun element to them. And um, I like my horror films to be fun and popcorn is a lot of fun, so. So if you had to give Pale Blood uh, a score out of five, what, what would you give it? Hmm, I would go three for this one. And that's, I would say for my personal enjoyment, I would hit it higher. Um, but I don't think the script is quite as tight as Mirror Mirror, if we're looking at comparisons. Um, and, but it gets like a solid three, for me, almost purely on the visuals and the setting and the punk as anything kind of tone um, and the soundtrack. I, just, I mean, it's filled with all of my favorite things about like 80s and 90s horror films. So you have all the fashion, like kind of the alternative independent fashion. You have um, filming in nightclubs, um, you, which is also a thing that's in Blood Diner, the Jackie Kong film that I love. And you have a band playing on stage, which I love and is very kind of buffy which also makes me very happy. And there's just so much fashion and kind of insouciance in it. I just, it, it gives me everything I need from a kind of 80s, 90s film, I think. But I think in terms of a complete package, it's probably more of a three. No, I think that's, I think that that's pretty fair. Um, I, I don't know exactly what Lauren will say, but I feel like she'll probably yeah. come in pretty close to a three as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what about no. you? Oh, you're going to say at the end, aren't you? I'm not going to hear right now what you think. <laughs> I'll give I'll give you this one since I didn't on on Mirror Mirror. I'll give you on this one. I think that I'll go. I think that I'll go with three as well. I yeah. think that that's all really fair criticisms um, of it. I I do think that where it it excels, it excels incredibly well. Yes. Um, but I do think that there are those those few little elements that just hold it back from from being to you said as as tight and as focused um and have as much momentum as it as it could have yeah yeah completely um no i think that that's all great um is there anything that you would like to uh say to the film buds where they can find you any sort of final thoughts that you would like to to share with the listeners Oh, yeah, of course. Um, so I recommend everybody goes out and watches Pale Blood um, and watches Mirror Mirror. And if you enjoy them, I would also recommend Blood Diner from 1987. And if you're really into, and that's by Jackie Kong. And if you're really into vampires, I recommend Tale of a Vampire from 1992 by Shimako Sato. There's a whole world of 80s and 90s 
um, horror films directed by women that no one is talking about. And some of, there's, there's a real like embarrassment of riches out there if you go digging for them. So I recommend that all the listeners go in and enjoy these films. Um, if you want more from me, um, you can find me on Instagram at um, Instagram backslash Alison Pierce. Um, I've also got the website, which is alisonpierce.com. Um, I'm sure it'll be in the show notes. So I've got a really weird spelt surname, so you'd have to spell it out on there. And last thing, um, I've got well, two last things. I, my last book is Women Make Horror, Filmmaking, Feminism and Genre, um, which if you like this stuff from women filmmakers, you might want to get hold of. And I've also got a horror film newsletter called The Losers Club, which is named after a Stephen King novel. And um, I send that out roughly every two weeks. And it's kind of what I've been watching, what I've been reading, just my thoughts and whatever random horror things I've been up to. So if you are interested in that, it's free and you can sign up on my website. No, yeah, that's great. And, and Women Make Horror is a phenomenal book. So oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, definitely go and, and pick that one up. Um, do you have any any other upcoming projects that you're working on? Yes, I do. I'm currently on research leave. So my my job is associate professor of film at the University of Leeds in the UK. And I won a big grant, um, a fellowship to buy me out of teaching for the next year so I can write my next book. And I'm now writing my next book, which is provisionally titled Her Chainsaw Heart, the women filmmakers, critics and theorists who redesign the horror genre. And I'm going in much deeper. So women make horror is like the beginning. And this is like the next level book. And I'm writing all of this one on my own about all the different ways to think about women filmmakers and horror films. So I'm on with that at the moment. I only started in February which is when my research list started, but hopefully I'll write that over the next year and then it'll be out at some point after that. That sounds awesome. I love Thank the you. title. Uh, <laughs> I love the concept. So titles, titles are such difficult things to get right. Oh, so hard. Is, I think that's really fantastic. I like it a lot. Thank you. Um, I will definitely link everything uh, for Allison down below. Uh, so definitely go and, and check out all of her stuff, get the book. Um, it's, it's really good stuff. So that was our discussion on Pale Blood. And I'm going to, once again, since they've heard from me a little bit already, turn it, turn it over to you. So what did you think of Pale Blood? I felt like this movie had no idea where it wanted to go until it knew where it wanted to go. Um, <laughs> um, it was, it was a great ride, but I definitely felt for like a good half. I was like, what is, what is the story here? Like, who are these characters? Why are we following them around? It was a, it was a lot of like atmosphere and, and mood and, and setting and not a lot of dialogue. And when there was dialogue, it was like constantly focused on this idea that there was a vampire murdering people. But like, how did you, how did you never, you know, go to look this dude up before your whole entire correspondence with him? And then you brought him to town on oh, you're just talking to a stranger like how did you how did you know i guess you know this is before all of our technical advances and like you know 
trolls on the internet kind of deal. I was like, how did, why did you trust him so much? You know, there's a, there's a lot of like air in this movie, I feel like, which is, which is a good and a bad thing. I think that the things that are really strong about this movie are the, the, the weird, like mood setting things, the, the, um, the very edgy, kind of world that we're living in that's just like adjacent to reality of sorts you know it's because th this is a world where vampires are real and I think that I think that those are the things you know the lighting of this movie is really interesting I think that a lot of the the locations are really cool I loved his this entire house or whatever that he is staying in that is ginormous that, that has no furniture and so it's it's almost like a museum of sorts of like, you know, when you, you go into like an empty abstract building and you're like, what 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 was this room even supposed to be? Well, how was I supposed to put furniture in here? What does this place look like? It looks like the the house that um Catherine O'Hara turns the beet like the Beetlejuice house into, but completely empty and white. You know what I mean? Like very like art deco, but also like completely void and I think that that's I guess kind of where this movie hits for me is like the the I loved the club scene where they're like all of these weird costume well and you know it's 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 of the times but like for now now I can say that they're like very you know above and beyond I guess you know very not my mom dressing of that time it's very like the young well, i think it's supposed to be like a leather club oh okay okay it's like it's like i was like i was gonna say it's very um the youth culture the the rebel youth culture kind of colliding with um i guess like an older rebel culture of sorts with this like I, um our our lead guy michael um, fury michael fury that is his name i kept being like bernardo in my brain um and his like weird relationship with whomever the girl's name is it, it doesn't matter right now the russian one <sighs> maybe she's sherry maybe <laughs> sherry maybe that sounds like a song um and like this this weird relationship that they had of like catching eyes in a in a club and it really made me feel like those all of those old kind of um old vampire movies where they could like you know entice somebody to come and they would feed off of them and they would never remember it in the end you know this this way of of being able to persuade people with just a look or just a word you know i thought that this it had that really interesting kind of, I don't know. Well, because of her costuming, she's also very, she stands out entirely separately from everyone. So she's this oh, very yeah. eye-catching thing. And because he's this kind of, um, in his costuming, this kind of Johnny Cash, man in black kind of thing. Um, and he's surrounded by the this sort of like, leather club punk aesthetic kind of thing then she comes in in this bright you know dress i think she's wearing um, like bright pink and so she almost on a certain way comes across as like 
more pure, you know? She's this different, flowery, bright presence, you know, in this dark, in this dinge. You know, and I think that that also lends with you saying pure as, like, again, with the, the vampire, you know, isms that we've come to know and love. It's like they, they always want to go for somebody who's who's pure of heart, you know, and, you know, maybe not as, I don't know, trashy, I guess. And it's like, you're going to be literally drinking this person's blood. This is right in the, the middle of the, the AIDS pan, you know, epidemic. Like, I'm, I'm sure that if I were a vampire, I'd be like, ah, maybe her and not, 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 not any of these dirty folk. <laughs> um, but then there's like, I have a lot of questions about some of the casting in this movie. Like, I love Bernardo. I think that he's great as um, Michael Fury. I want to call him Nick Fury so bad. But Michael Fury, I think that he does a great job. But I also think that it kind of could have been anybody. And I'm not sure if I 100% buy. I think that their chemistry, him and um, Cherry or Mary or Carrie, whomever... I think that their chemistry is way better than his chemistry with Lori. I think that, I think that honestly, like, if we, if we, you know, once you get to the end, you, you figure out more things about her character. But like, from the beginning, I was like, I don't understand how you got to become a detective at all. Because you haven't done any detective work in this entire thing. If anything, you've done a lot of like, weird seances and stuff but I've never once seen you actually in a police department at all you could have been anybody everybody could just be anybody in this movie it's so it's so strange and I feel like a lot of also um people run into people a lot in this movie just like oh we just happened to be at the same club as such and such in the other one how coincidental and I was like how this is LA <laughs> So it really kind of like puts, it's it's almost like put it into like a time capsule, like in a, in a bubble. It's in its own little pocket universe where there's only five people basically. And then there's these like really cool shots. But I, I, um, I've rambled so much. <laughs> this movie is like a lot of like interesting layers, I guess, is my takeaway. And I like the way that it uses, um the 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 not zombie um the vampire isms but in this like different way and they're not as obvious as other parts of the movie that are very obvious where I was like so he's our Van Helsing you say you don't say like wow could have given me a, a bigger a bigger doozy on that one but you were like here it is it's right here easy as pie you know um no, absolutely. I think one other thing, you know, tapping into the vampire lore and what they do interestingly with this story is there is also this kind of um, faint idea of consent because Michael Fury doesn't just run around feeding indiscriminately. You mm. know, he goes, he talks to her, it becomes a consensual act between them and then he feeds on her. Whereas... Our villainous guy, who isn't even a vampire, is out here running around, forcibly doing this, taking this, you know, and I think like that he's it, owed something in this whole thing. And so I think that it also becomes this little vague idea on, on consent well, as then, well. 
maybe that can be um even mirrored with the fact that like mirror mirrored (laughs) (laughs) nice um with the fact that like michael fury is so much older than like everybody else in the film and and our and van is like i'd say maybe like in his 40s at the time and like i'd say that michael was probably in his 60s to like i'd say 60s is probably accurate and so it's kind of this weird like older man gentleman you know kinder gentler mysterious man whereas like there's this young guy who basically struts around town takes what he wants and like doesn't really care who he who he affects in the process um but also feels like he he deserves something out of the whole thing you know what i mean where he's like the 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 scummy film guy who's like i can basically have these women do whatever i want them to and wrap it up in the bow of art and that also allows me to to be a scumbag and to treat people however i want whereas like michael who is a vampire has all of these um you know stereotypes against him because of what he is and is like constantly you know going above and beyond to to be different than what you perceive him to be and i think that that's also like really an interesting dynamic with our literal only males in the movie also um i think that it's really interesting that it is so much in like this male perspective for it to be you know directed by a woman because like michael is michael fury is our is our main character and then when it's not him it's pretty much like either maybe Lori the detective but like in very spits and spurts and she doesn't really do anything interesting except for like her seance moments um and but then we're like solidly in van's perspective and so i think it's really this like almost like a jekyll and hyde aesthetic you know we've got our our nice you know dr dr jekyll and and then we've got our wicked mr hyde you know this this duality happening well and you know that's the duality of course of of dracula and van helsing right the 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 lusting monster you know the gentleman you Mm -hmm. know pursuer uh of the monster except this time it's been reversed yeah you know our kind and gentle monster who only feeds just what he needs um no and i i think that it i think that that all works really well um it is a little bit slow and unfocused as as i talked about with with allison it is mm-hmm. a little bit scattershot you know it doesn't have the tightness of some thrillers because and and it does describe itself as an erotic vampire thriller um oh i see it and it does get more thrilling once you get toward where it's really cooking but for it to have the descriptor of thriller, I'm not sure that we have that nice, drawn, taut tension throughout the whole movie. No, I would completely agree. And I think that that's why I'm like, I'm a little like on the fence, like, 
you know, with my opinions about this movie, because again, like, I think that where it really succeeds is in all of its, like, visual prowess and all of these interesting moods and, all and of, ideas. Yeah. yeah. And then I think that it wastes so much time on that, that, like, all these quiet, silent, introspective moments that, like, then out of nowhere, it's like, oh, God, we need to throw some plot in here. Okay, um, I don't know. Have her have a vision, and then we'll skip ahead to him him doing some more, like, interesting, introspective things. Because, like, I didn't, I guess, for me, understand the whole, like, their, their, their quote-unquote connection you know with with her desperately wanting to to use these 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 the spirit realm to understand what happened to these girls and have that be the the means of her solving this mystery and him getting all of those visions and seeing everything that she wished she saw and i was like this is this is weird yeah. <laughs> this is this is really this is really a disjointed thing where I was like, or hear me out. You could do some detective work. And maybe like, we could have another victim. Yeah. Or like, you know, she could have, yeah, we could have had a, another victim before his girlfriend, mm -hmm. you know, and then maybe she finally figures out what's going on and like puts herself more directly in the, in harm's way. And that's how he comes and 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 saves the day instead of it being him getting put in a trap and her coming there because of intuition well without getting i don't some of it's a little bit spoilery i think i mean i don't know um, <laughs> but i i think that i think that there is a reason for that connection um well, I know that that's the reason, but I think that they could have also, I think, picked a picked um, either one or the other lane instead of just, like, driving on the lines. No, that's fair. Um, so, if you had to give Pale Blood a rating out of five, what would you give it? I think I'm going to go with a three. I think that it's, like, it's right in the middle of the lines. No, yeah. Well, and... And this will tie into a little bit of our tail end discussion as well. You know, it also is coming at this time where, like I, I mentioned in my other discussion, neo-noir is kind of really having its day and erotic thrillers are really coming into their own. And so you've got like Basic Instinct a few years after this. You've got Wild Things. Uh, a few years before this, you had Blood Simple. Uh, you've got like Sam Raimi's A Simple Plan. Um, you've got a lot of these stories that are happening and cropping up at this time. Um, and even though it's a super, super interesting movie, and I like it for lots of reasons, if you just go in on a bare-bones structure of a thriller level, compare it to some of these other things that are from that time, if it didn't have the direct vampire element, you know, I'm not sure that some of the some of the thriller aspect of it would really hold up against some of those. No, yeah, I think that if I put this script down on paper and just read it, I would be really lost. Because where they do have lines, I, I'm not sure, I guess, necessarily if they're like ever really motivated by anything. 
if that makes sense. You know, yeah. it, it's just, it is talking about vampires. And that's, that's the whole thing is like, who is the vampire hunter? We are vampires. And there's a, there's a whole lot of sexiness involved with vampires. And like, that's, that's pretty much where we live. I will agree with you though. I think that the, the soundtrack is kicking. And I think that, yeah. I think that Van is by far like our, our runaway surprise best actor of the bunch like he is he is eating everything that he is given and it is gold to watch it is so good i wanted more of him but less of him because he was so good i hated him no i think that that's totally fair uh so i asked allison this question and i'll i'll present it to you okay uh i saw as i told her this thing on twitter where people were discussing that a horror movie doesn't have to be scary. And, you know, she gave her answer. I put it at the beginning of the episode. Mm-hmm. For you, does a horror movie have to be scary? And if not, then what does a horror movie, I guess, for you personally need? Um, I do not think that a horror movie necessarily has to be like jump out of my seat scary but i do have to be horrified in some capacity yes i think that it has to push the boundaries of comfortable like a comfortable spot it has to it has to be either like grotesque or it has to be like monstrous in 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 who in who my killer is or who my my bad entity is or anything like that i think that it has to sit in an unsettling spot and i do not necessarily think that it has to have like jump scares by any means shape or form but i do think that it also has to have my my perspective character in 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 some kind of peril you know that's it's my lead it's my person that i'm rooting for the whole time it's the it's the their journey is the and them getting through this journey is is the reason that I've I've come here, you know, is to whether or not see them survive whatever it whatever the 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 trials are, you know, and I think that that's what separates a horror movie from from a thriller is, you know, I think that I think that thriller is a is a bigger umbrella. I think that um but I do think that like depending on the person a horror movie should scare someone and that's probably fair um because also you know some of the discussion was that people who have seen loads of horror movies it's hard for them to get scared anymore in a horror film yeah and i think that that's a totally fair point and you know i don't necessarily get scared per se in certain horror films but i think you're right there has to be some moments of of tension in some way or discomfort in some way you have to i i think it does have to tap into some of those sensibilities and some of those feelings you know um it's kind of like in an action movie you don't necessarily want it to be so telegraphed that your bad that your bad guy is going to lose and your good guy is going to win but like at the end of the day that's what i want yeah, and that, and you know, that'll probably happen, but it shouldn't be so 
so obvious, you know, on certain levels. There needs to be some tension in, like, the big climactic final fight Mm -hmm. for me to go, that was a damn good action sequence. Because, like, I've got a great Mm -hmm. example. Yeah. The, the, The original Evil Dead and the remake. Yeah. I think that they are both horror movies. I think that the first one is 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 not scary you know not not scary at all um but i do think that it pushes this envelope of what what makes you feel comfortable the entire time i think that it finds ways to be twisted and weird and um unsettling and again never never once truly like frightening because also like you know age has come upon this movie but I, it is, it's, it's such a fun ride to go on. Whereas the new one is, is, is truly horrifying. You know, I think that it takes all of the seeds that the original plants and like says, what if we actually made these things terrifying instead of kind of funny? You know what I mean? And, and I think that that's kind of the thing, you know, again, both totally horror movies. And, the, the possessed person in the, the remake of Evil Dead is also as funny as the possessed person in the basement was in the original Evil Dead. But again, it's in like this much more perverse, you know, much more twisted, darkly funny way. Yeah, yeah. No. Whereas in the original, it's it's Ted Raimi in about eight pounds of latex pretending to be like a, a woman. And it's hilarious. Oh, yeah, totally. And and again, still twisted, still unsettling, still just like, what am I watching? And I think that, um, you know, horror has to sit in an uncomfortable spot for a good bit of it in order for, for it to feel, you know, like a, like a horror movie. And I think that, you know, like Mirror Mirror, was it always scary? No, there was a lot of character work and a lot of building happening, but like, when it got to the the nitty gritty of it, like there were truly moments where I was like, "Oh my gosh, oh, that's 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 horrifying." Or even you know something as simple as um, you know her like, for lack of a better word, you know consummating her relationship with this mirror by like drinking the blood that starts to. Come oh yeah, it was so unsettling. It. I was like, "Please stop it!" <laughs> the whole time, her relationship with that mirror was was just just unsettling and again i think that that's it it needs to sit in a place that makes you uncomfortable and it does not necessarily that uncomfortableness does not necessarily have to then be a terrifying experience no for sure um so that's just about all that we have for the main discussion on this one uh the last thing that I kind of wanted to leave with was how do you feel now that we've gone through the whole month on, on how our women in film month has gone? How do you enjoy or, or how have you enjoyed this kind of look at what women have brought to the history of film? Oh, I'm, I really enjoyed it. I think that, um, it it it's a whole it's a whole rainbow of 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 feelings of of stories of you know subject matter and it truly just like you know cements the fact that like anybody can do anything 
you know, when given the, the opportunity, you know, just because they're women doesn't mean that they've made something girly or worse or whatever, you know, your, your mind goes to as like a derogatory, you know, thought process when it comes to women in, in any industry. Um, and I think that like, you know, it, it should, the, the lines should blur more. I think that, um, for the most part, our, our, our women directing movies have been more introspective when it comes to like emotionality and character work. And I find that really interesting. And, and usually, you know, you write what you know. And so they've, they've also been mostly, you know, women centric stories, um, about, you know, women leads, not necessarily, you know, doing again, quote unquote, women things. But like it is, you know, they have interesting things to say and and I've I've truly enjoyed especially you know going getting to go back as far as we did to to you know the 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 movie with with Lucille Ball, you know, and and, and all of these kind of like you got to do what you got to do kind of attitude that this movie had and I think that that's still something that resonated with me as a woman now as that is is it's still a part of being a woman today it's still this this struggle against you know not necessarily like the patriarchy but like as a as a mindset of of where your place is what your value is and you can you know you having to put in more effort in order to be seen and i think that you know that's that's completely still you know a the fact of of modern times you know with us still fighting for not only equality for women but also people of color and you know people who don't identify the way the norm has 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 labeled you know what people should be and i've just i've really enjoyed this journey i would love to to go further into you know not only looking at more of our common women directors that everybody knows but also going further and deeper down into these more unknown stories because I'm sure that there are some gems down there and like we said in a previous conversation you know just because you're like a one-hit wonder or like you don't get to do a lot of stuff that that first film is always you know the closest one to your heart you know it's it's the one that you you've slaved over the most as this is like this is it if this doesn't work it's it's back to the drawing board basically you know this is this is me on the page and i would love to see what that what that means for for not only other women but also you know other identities as well you know to 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 not just have one type of story from one perspective for one type of person told constantly on a loop where you know the the female characters have have nothing going for them but being attractive and stupid and that's not reality and what it, i'm not sure what reality you lived in that you thought that that was the case either because i have never once like met any woman that that i would ever call stupid in any way shape or form you know so either that's your perfect woman and then you need to get your head out of your ass <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, I've, I've truly, truly, it's, it's been, it's been a wonderful 
um, experience. And honestly, like I, I want to do more of it. No, for sure. Um, I agree with you completely, you know, and I w I, I would love to honestly bring this back around potentially next March, if that's, um, something that we're able to, to do scheduling wise and stuff like that. Um, because, and, and potentially even expand the palette further, you know, we did manage to, um, successfully incorporate non-American women, um, we incorporated, um, some, uh, Asian, Asian women, uh, both, you know, in anime and in live action, mm-hmm. um, our only, like, American woman, our only American women, I think, were, like, Mirror Mirror, and I'm not even sure if she's American, um, and Where My Children and, uh, Dance Girl Dance. Dance Girl Dance, thank you, I love terrible name and so (laughs) you know we managed to to make a pretty wide spread you know also going from 1916 all the way to 2021 so we managed to i think cover really incredible ground and i'm very proud of that and i think that we made a pretty pretty special month of content that i'm i'm very proud of um and yeah, it, it covered a, a, a wide range of of what women can be, you know, in front of and behind the camera. You know, women can be kind. Women can be messy. You know, women can be hard. Women can be into gore. You know, it, it and these all sound, you know, like I'm sure to a lot of y'all, like very duh things. Um, but, you know, there are people who this is still revelatory for. Uh, the vast uh, multitudes that a, that a woman can contain as a person, as it's, an identity. Because also at the end of the day, you know, it's it's kind of that old adage, is like you are what you eat. You know, you will never know the the depths of any person or you know group of people exactly until you truly get to see a wide range of differences of personalities of likenesses of of strengths of weaknesses otherwise you are going to just look at an entire group and go with the stereotype you're going to go with what you've been what you've been spoon-fed your entire life by the media you you've consumed and if there's only one type out there then that's the only type that you're going to get and that's what you're going to make a lot of decisions around and you don't realize it but it is like a subconscious thing that happens when you know you 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 only see black people portrayed as as gangsters or or as you know robbers or this that and the other and you don't ever get any positive outlets for that and that's what you're gonna assume that all black people are like and when you when you get people that then come out and do speak on their experience of a certain group if you're not exposed to how vast the opinions of that group are then that person then starts to speak as a monolith Mm -hmm. for you and so then you're you're taking that idea 
of what that person believes, even if it's positive, and then applying that too broadly, mm-hmm. you know, to your understanding of that group. No, exactly. You know, we are we are all a multitude of different things that make up us as an individual. We may identify with with things that bring us together but at the end of the day we're kind of like a giant venn diagram with multiple amounts of circles that constantly you know inter intermingle and some are bigger and smaller but at the end of the day it's like a fingerprint we all have different things but you know we all have things that that bring us together in different groups and so looking at an entire group like women and just saying that all women are this is is a is a very you know small-minded opinion about you know a a group of people that also enjoy doing roller derby or love to act or love you know to to be a doctor or whatever you know all of these things that that make us different and I think that this has been a really great experience and, but it's just been, you know, it's a scratch of the surface. There's yeah. so many more things to go down. We could have done, we honestly could have done a movie a day. Exactly. And that still would have been scratching the surface. And I think that this has been a great experience for, um, for Women's History Month as, as, as a start, you know, as, is breaking a little bit of a boundary away and then continuing down it because like I would I would love to again like I said to 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 watch more to experience more because you know not only is the woman exp- exp- uh, perspective important but also there are women from all over the world there are women who 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 you know tall women short women you know all of these different things that make us human that are the things that we can bring to our art and to the things that we make that make that thing also uniquely special. No, absolutely. And, you know, as a great example, using a film that we talked about this month, you know, Clint Eastwood could have never made The Power of the Dog. No. You know, and that's because of who Clint is, because of his experience. And he could have shot it, and he could have done it, but it, it wouldn't have had the same emotional textures that Jane Campion brought to that movie. Yeah. You know, and I'm sure that he definitely would have never touched on part of its subject matter either. Or if he did, it would have come across potentially um, either half-baked or a little bit over, maybe even potentially ham-fisted. Yeah. You know. Um, But she brought a lot of depth to that. And so, like, I think that it's probably a pretty pretty limited number of men who who make westerns today that i think could have made the power of the dog well i mean considering the fact that like even you know people prominent men who have done westerns looked at this movie and were like ah garbage and trash just shows how you know narrow-minded their perspective of not only of an entire genre can truly be you know it's not just one thing, because if it's just one thing, then why should we have a hundred of it? Why should we have thousands of it? Why do I want to watch the same show on repeat, but not just the same show, the same episode of the same show on repeat? No, that's boring. Yeah. No, that's totally fair. Um, I think that's pretty much where we'll, we'll wrap it up for them today. 
Yeah, I mean, we've they've heard us talk for a very long time. But, you know, if you if you liked this month and you want more things, you know, like it. I don't I guess I don't know if you like podcasts. Write a review. That's how you like this podcast. Or Rate share it. it with someone. Yeah, share it with somebody, share it with somebody you love, share it with somebody you hate. I really don't care. You know, follow. maybe if you didn't enjoy it, specifically send it to someone that you hate. You know, or pff, I don't know. You do you, but you know, also help assist out. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you guys for listening. Um, it's like I said, it's been a great month. Um, I have to also go and thank all of our guests that we've had on this month. Thank no, you yes. to. Uh, Austin and Tori from the Third Impact Anime Podcast. Thank you to Madeline. Thank you for Dr. Allison Pierce. We really appreciate y'all bringing your expertise, your your knowledge, because even though I try to do as much research as I possibly can and come as equipped as I possibly can, you know, you do just sometimes need that person to come in and and teach you and be an expert voice and provide all that they know because you know just as no people are the same no one's knowledge is the same you know Austin and and Tori have such a a vast particular knowledge that I don't have and Madeline is one of the most you know well-read well-rounded people that I probably know um with this very incredible depth of knowledge that you know she's acquired of like very particular subsets of history um and and allison you know master of master of horror right there um and so we we definitely thank y'all for coming in and, and bringing your perspectives and your voice to this to this month of content as well yes um lastly the the last thing that i'll say before i let y'all go I'm I'm like a bad preacher. I'm like one more thing. <laughs> um uh I just dropped a review Thursday of the brand new HBO show. It's a Max original. Um One Perfect Shot where they go and do a half hour little docu series talking to six different filmmakers where they selected their perfect shot from the films that they have directed and they talk a little bit about their own personal history they bring in some people who worked uh on the film along along the way and then they also do this kind of immersive breakdown of the shot it's really interesting uh i wrote a review for it and so if you would like to go and give that a read i've got that posted in the show notes Thank you guys so much for listening. Don't forget to come back next month. Uh, we'll be announcing what that's going to look like sometime here soon. There's going to be a potential collaboration with another show. Woo! So it's going to be another good month. Thanks for listening, you guys. We'll, we'll, we'll talk to you all next week. Bye! Bye.